The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. It's preached. Father, we come to you. We have been here. It's felt like a very peaceful, purifying moment to, as your people call on you, it's felt very much like an answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer. We would be one The Father, Son, Spirit are one. There is such a, an incredible oneness. Family being held together by the love you've given us. And you are love. And pray now as we hear your word, your challenging, loving word, that we will have ears that hear it hearts that are responsive. God, as our, maybe our minds throw doubt on it or challenge it, I pray that you allow us by your spirit to hear the truth and respond. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Adam and Eve looked at one another in silence. Their pain was too deep, too full, too consuming for words. There were thoughts and questions that would sometimes find their way through the filter of their pain. How could death be this terrible? Who could have known that to eat of the tree would mean this? Was this the end of Abel? Would they ever see Abel again? Their boy, their beautiful boy, was dead. And his brother Cain had killed him. It was not a death by natural causes, but a death by murder. The first human life to be extinguished as an act of anger, the act of ultimate Betrayal. So, although they knew, I'm sure, as the many questions came, how did we get to this place of death? Now, it's just three short chapters that get us to this place in Genesis. Three short, three very beautiful chapters. Where God creates the world and everything in it, creates humanity in it. Humanity full of promise, created for God to be with him and for one another, that they would enjoy companionship, fellowship, romance. We were made for this. And the instructions seemed very simple. All this is yours. All of it. Enjoy it. Fill the earth be creative, go for it, but 
don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. It probably seemed impossible that anything really bad could happen in Eden. It was all so good. And so the serpent, the deceiver, leaned into that. Surely it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. Did God really say that if you disobey him, that you would die? Surely it can't be that bad. Surely God couldn't do that or wouldn't say that. And I think of how easy it is for us in the same way to ask that same question, did God really say every day? Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Is there really a God? You're reading from Genesis. Isn't that just a myth? All the ways day after day after day, we in the same way wrestle with the question, does God really say? And it is impossible for us, even with all our knowledge of history, to calculate the consequence of disobedience. And yet while it's so easy to disregard the words of scripture, the consequences are around us, they're inside of us, it is a constant, constant experience. And yet still the words, did God really say, does he really mean it, does it actually matter, still have profound influence, maybe even right now? How could Adam and Eve understand the consequences of disobedience? That in a moment, disobedience for them would mean separation from their self, confusion. What am I doing? What's the meaning of life? (laughs) The consequence of separation from one another, shame that they felt in the presence of each other that they had never felt before, fear, Separation from God, fear in relationship to him where before it was just a pleasure to be with God, hear his voice, desire his presence. And then all of a sudden from that moment on, there was just, it was fear, the consequence of disobedience. I think like many consequences, Adam and Eve hoped that the result could be localized. In some way, it could be contained and maybe in a short time done away with. After all, right after the disobedience in Genesis 3.15, God comes and he walks in the garden and he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's this, this poetic, almost a riddle, this prophecy that was very clear to them that that the lie that had led to the disobedience, that had led to the consequence would be crushed, would be somehow be done away with, and it would somehow be the offspring of the woman. So, Genesis 4.1, Eve is pregnant, and they have a son named Cain, and imagine the anticipation, the excitement Maybe this 
was the offspring, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Man, in a short amount of time, this is great. It's like we could, you know, don't worry. Death was bad, but it's almost done because Cain's here. And so Cain enters the world and, and I think they just put all their hopes, all their, all their excitement in the promise that Cain will be the one that crushes the head of the serpent, that, that the deception, disobedience will just be done away with because we don't like its results, right? So we just want to get done away with it as soon as we can. Oh yeah, and along the way, another son was born, but who cares? Because Cain is here. And so Abel... I think it's the second best of everything. All of Cain's hand-me-down clothing and just doesn't really matter as much because, because Cain is here and Cain will crush the head of the serpent. And so the time comes when the family gathers to honor God. What will they bring to him? And so Adam and Eve probably send Cain and Abel and they say, Man, go bring, we're gonna, we're gonna honor God together. And then this is the story, how it goes in Genesis in the course of time, Cain brought some fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. Now, now to see how in very short two sentences it describes the difference, Cain kind of just brings something, right? Brings some fruit. But Abel is, it seems like he is so attuned to bringing his best. He brings the fat portions from some of the firstborn from among the flock. And so, so Cain, I think, just feels the sense of entitlement. He goes, I am just awesome. I am just, everyone, my whole life has been telling me that Cain, you're the best. You're the answer. Here you go. And so he's like, God just looks on me with favor. And yet Abel comes before God bringing his everything, bringing his best. And it says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Canaan's offering, he did not look with favor. How is this possible? How is it possible that God did not look with favor on Cain? He was the promised one, right? I think it was like, he's gonna crush the head of the serpent and, and maybe something happens here where, where Adam and Eve seeing that Wait, how could Cain crush the head of the serpent if God's not going to look with favor on him? This is moment here, and, and Cain feeling, I think, so entitled, even though he didn't bring his best, he's angry. He's incensed at the thought that God would not look at him with favor, consumed with the feeling of animosity face downcast. And so the Lord responds to him, comes in and sort of brings Cain and he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. And so, so the Lord here is being really helpful to Canaan. There's, there's a couple of things he names in Canaan. If God comes and he names something in you, pay attention. Right? When he says, look, this is what's going on inside of you. And God's being really helpful to Canaan here. And the first thing he says, he sees the anger in him. He calls it out and he sees 
that this the hatred that's consuming him. And he, he invites Cain to see what's happening in his own heart. There's something wrong in his heart, something hurtful, something hateful, something deadly. God goes, why are you angry? Helping him see, helping him process this. And God goes, that is the wrong way. That way will lead to death. And if, if we can go back, we'll do the last says, but if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And see, we contrast this with this right way. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. So there is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. But the amazing thing is then he says, this, this sin isn't just this neutral party. See, and I think... I th- I think it's probably hard for, for Adam and Eve, Cain, the process that no longer do they live in a place that if you just hang out, peace will rule and peace will reign. But it says that sin is actually this active agent desiring Cain. <laughs> if you just stand still, it's coming after you, right? This is kind of a scary picture, right? Not that just like, you know, if I just hang out and be... I'm just going to be awesome. (laughs) No, because there's this active agent seeking to pursue you and it desires to have you. And it says it wishes to rule over you. That there is something that will rule your heart. What will it be? And how will Cain respond to this? And Cain, I think, had no way of understanding there's, there's, show, there's, in, in his idea, he has every thought that he still is in control, that he still can do it. And so if we go on, this is, this is the result of that. He says, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is the reality of death, both in the reality of when God said, surely if you disobey, you're gonna die. And, and all the things, the fear, the shame, feeling of uncertainty that came with that. But then even that Cain would take the life of his own brother. Now, this is hard to read. This is hard to hear. This is disappointing on every level. But I want you to think of the disappointment for Adam and Eve that hope that sin could be so easily contained. And I want us to think how, how much we want sin to be so easily contained. Well, maybe this. Maybe it'll just be Cain. Maybe it'll just be a better day tomorrow. Maybe, it'll, maybe I'm just going to be nicer. Maybe I'm just, you know, whatever those things, the ways we think it will be so easily contained. And though it wishes to rule over us. And, and so all the ways we jockey and try to position ourselves right. Well, I want to contrast for us their hope for a promised one came with the actual promised one, Jesus. It's this incredible contrast that as we remember Palm Sunday, 
The day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and everyone's yelling, Hosanna. This one who actually is the promise and the one that they hope to be the promise in Canaan. So if we go to John 12, read this with me. It says, the next day, a great crowd had come from the festival hearing Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, now it's interesting as we think of Hosanna and how, how simple that, that shout of praise is. Hosanna, ho, Hosanna. And every time I was reading that this week as I prepared for today, I just thought how similar in some ways that is, how easy it is to say, and a week later, the same crowd that was shouting Hosanna would be yelling, crucify. Hosanna, crucify. The same group who, who's just still, I think, trying to figure out, trying to control the situation. And then Jesus <laughs> enters in, this one find, finding a young donkey and sitting on it. It says, as, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And well, if we can skip a little bit forward, we're gonna um, see as, as Jesus is here, there, everyone has different perspectives, both the disciples, you see the Pharisees here, and then these Greeks who are coming. And everyone's trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. All their perspectives, all the things that Jesus could be, all the things they wanted him to be. And Jesus replies this at the very bottom here in, in verse 23. It says, he, re- he replies, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, what does that glorification look like? Verse 24, it says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. Now what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I think of, of how, how troubled he is with this. It's not that he faced his death with like, it doesn't matter. He realized the full weight of it and he says, no, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. And then in verse 28, it says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will, I will glorify it again. Now compare this hope for promise one, Cain, with the actual promise one, Jesus. Cain made much of himself. He just made, even when God came and said, Cain, why are you angry? Cain, do you see what's going on in your life? Do you see what's happening? Cain made much of himself while Jesus makes much of the Father. 
Cain made much of himself while Jesus makes much of the father. And Jesus says, will, will I step back from being asked me? Will I step back from death? He goes, no, it's for this reason. I, father, glorify your name. The whole point of my life, Father, is that you would be glorified. And so when, when he was faced with the reality of death, he didn't seek just to save his own life, but he said, but Father, glorify your name. That's a, that was a whole view and perspective of his life. Think how different that was to to Cain, who thought he could just maintain control on his own. Cain wanted a place of honor, while Jesus sought out the place of humility. Cain's like, I can just bring whatever, who cares? (laughs) Because I just am honorable. Well, well, what did Jesus do? Jesus chose the servant's donkey, not the, the king's steed to ride in and be like, I'm your savior. But he, he took the lowest place so that he could relate with us in every way. And think of how that, that changed the perspective of, of death, where Cain was grasping, I just want to honor myself above all. How could Abel be honored more than me? How could Abel be shown more favor than me? Well, that wasn't the perspective of Jesus. Jesus was like, no, I'm going to choose the place because I know that the, the Hosanna in a week will turn to crucify. I know what's going on in people's hearts. So I'm going to choose the place of service. And then lastly, Cain took a life. Cain set himself against others if that would challenge himself where Jesus offered his own life so he could give life to others. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says, my life, instead of grasping at it and holding on to it, he goes, what I'm going to do with my life is I'm going I'm I'm to offer it out as for, for as many people as I can. How does this change the reality of death? Think think of how Cain approached life and how death just surrounded him and he couldn't get away from it even though he thought himself as the conqueror of it, I think. And then Jesus, think of the way he faces death and the reality of death and how this impacts us. Do you make much of yourself or do you make much of the Father? Think about how that changes the reality of death. Do you seek your own honor or do you have a humble perspective? Father, glorify your name. Father, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you take life from others or do you give life to others by offering yourself and all of it? I think the challenge with these and these questions is that, that if we did this perfectly, we would be perfectly ready to face the reality of death. But none of us do this perfectly. None of us can say, by my own merit, because I've lived so well, I'm ready to stand before God. I think that's Cain's perspective. I'm just ready, God. I'm just going to come, whatever you say, God, I'm just going to do my own thing. None of us can stand before God. Our hosannas, you're in my hosannas, quickly turn to crucify him. We find the anger or whatever 
it is that so often is in our own hearts. So this week, I want to ask you to consider the promised one on the donkey. The promised one who made much of the father, made himself lower than all others and gave his life as a ransom for many. Compare his promise with the reality of death. You are being invited to participate in his death because in his death, death is defeated. This is one of the most beautiful scriptures that his death defeats death and so that his life might be shared. Everything you and I have can be taken away. It's only what is eternal that will remain. How does that change the way we view life? And will we receive from life only what we can get from it for ourselves or will we make much of the Father? Will we take the humble view and will we join Jesus in giving our life to the very end for others? Because in that, I think we'll realize that it's not by grasping at life that we keep it, but it's by holding to the promised one who gave himself for us. Guys, I share this as truth, but we have a lot to learn together in what this actually means. And so I just want to invite you, take this with you this week. What does it look like to make much of the promised one and take him at his word? And so as we get here next week and look at the promise of resurrection and you've carried with you, what does it mean to share in his death, to make much of the father, to take the humble perspective and to yourself not hold to your own life, but to give your life for others. What does that look like as we participate in his incredible resurrection? Pray with me. Father, we feel so much the pull of eternity. Death feels like the ultimate betrayal. I think of how you come to us like you came to Cain and you say, what's this going on in your heart? You see our heart, you see everything happening in it. And you say, man, I see what you're struggling with and I see it wishes to have you. And you offer us the right way. We get this incredible privilege of seeing Jesus the one who gave his life for us. And I pray that, guys, by your spirit, that we will just choose him, we'll just participate in his death and so participate in his resurrection. God, we feel so much like our lives are that seed so fragile being planted in the ground, every day planted 
curious about what will happen, God. We just we want to humble ourselves before you and just, God, do, do what you will with our lives. Have your way. Teach us to say, thy will be done. And just enjoy the participation in your life. Not feeling entitled to anything, but just attaching ourselves to Jesus. Though <laughs> being in very nature, God came, being God himself came so we can fully participate in your, your life. Not just a, a life here, a life for the present, but eternal life. Make that just the heartbeat of our lives, our peace, our comfort, our joy, our passion. Open our eyes to see this, our hearts to respond, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.